right. Well, good morning, Austin Stone. Hope you are doing well this morning. My name is Matt Blackwell. If you are new here, I just want to say thanks. I know it's hard to just show up in a new place, uh, maybe where you don't know where to go and how to get there. So if you're new, thanks for being here. If you are part of the family, welcome back. Glad to be together. As you know, we are in a sort of mini-series that we're starting off this year with, and we're calling it Boomtown. Uh, and it's a, it's a funny little word that we're using to describe the, all, what, what all of us are feeling in the city, right? If you've been here longer than a week, you're like, man, Austin's so different. It's changed uh, in the last week and it's grown and it's different because it is constantly changing. It is this boom town that we're experiencing. And so we're taking some time to look at what as a church does it look like to be a, a, in a changing, booming city with an unchanging gospel to where we love the church and love this city that God has put us in? What does that look like? And so I'm excited this morning because we get to talk about a topic related to this that we don't normally get to wrestle with. And I think it's important, particularly in this series, because for many of us, the reason that we're in this boom town, the reason that we're in this city is because work brought us here or work is keeping us here. And work is this area of life that we spend a majority of our waking weekly hours doing. And so we're trying to wrestle with how is it that I follow Jesus faithfully and biblically, but then also go to work for 40 or 50 hours a week. And there it feels like I'm not really allowed to do that. And so I know I'm not supposed to like yell at people or steal from the company, but is that the totality of what it means to be a Christ follower in the business place? Or is there something else beyond just that? Uh, we recognize that, that over COVID, work changed dramatically. Where we work, how we work, why we work has all changed. You know, we, we, technology has to ma made it sort of that we can work anywhere, which means basically we work everywhere. Uh, we have phones, we have email, we have constant ability to be accessed. And so work has sort of bled out into all of life. And so you're at your kids' ball games answering emails or in the middle of the night, you're getting text messages. And, and how does work-life balance, is that even really a thing? And so how we think about this. And so COVID radically changed work. Uh, here in Austin, the, um, the Chamber of Commerce said in 2020, that in Austin, we lost about 12% of all available jobs. So there was a big downturn. There's a lot of people let go during, uh, during the height of COVID. In 21, a lot of those jobs came back online. And so we're actually one of the few cities that's now seen, uh, we've moved into the black from 12%, we're at 13%. And so we have more jobs in 2022 than we had in 2020. And there's this shift that sort of happened. I don't know if you've heard the term the great resignation that was coined by a uh, professor at a small university in the Bryan College Station area, Gigum. Uh, a professor of management at Texas A&M was looking at trends in April of 21 and saw 4 million people resign. And then in May, 4.3 million people resigned. And this, this record number of people that were resigning continued for, for a few months saying there's something happening in our society that in 2020 people were fired, but in 2021 they're just resigning. So the great resignation is this sort of buzzword that we've seen and how we work and our relationship to work has shifted and changed for a lot of reasons. 
Maybe you've been in the hospitality industry, whether, whether restaurants or uh, movie theaters, hotels, coffee shops, all of the new regulations, the, the changing uh, mores of culture, the mandates or lack of mandates, the masking or lack of masking, the f- customers who are happy that you're open and those who are frustrated with anything that you do, uh, all sort of swirls into this, what is this even about? And that's not even counting all of the, the professions that we considered callings, professions like teachers, uh, doctors, nurses, consider flight attendants, consider uh, law enforcement, all of these massive uh, uh, challenges to how is it that we move forward? We're, 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 we're just frustrated. We're, we're confused with all of the rules and work has just become very weighty for us. Even in pastoral ministry, in my sort of uh, industry, so to speak, I, I read an article this week and said that 70% of pastors in the U.S. said that this current season has been the hardest season in their career, leading to 50% of those who were interviewed to say, I have honestly considered leaving my post uh, in my church to go find a different job. And the fact is, is that all of us have probably felt that. It's not just pastoral ministry. I'm sure many of us, statistically, at least half of us have considered, maybe it's time for me to do something else. I need to find better work-life balance. I don't know how to work with the kids at home. Uh, Health and safety concerns in the office. Uh, Mandates, I, I either love them or I hate them. Or maybe it's time to start that small business or take early retirement. And so all of these are sort of swirling in our hearts and in our minds. And some of you are saying, oh, good, I'm just a student. I don't have to worry about this. Hold on. Uh, If you are a student, part of your vocation and calling in this season of life is your education. Some of you are saying, oh, great, I'm retired. I don't have to think about this. That's for the youngsters. No, no. We're talking about vocation, which is the way that you spend your time. Some of you are saying, well, I work in the home. I don't have to think about this. No, no. We're talking about how you spend your weekly hours and how you use that time. And so whether you're working in the home or on the home or from your home or on the road or in the office or in school, what is it that we're spending our time and energy doing? Well, lots of questions uh, around this topic. And so what I wanted to do is simply give three sort of Uh, stones, some foundations for us to consider as we think about, from a biblical perspective, what does it look like to be a Christ follower in work, okay? I'm gonna give you three foundational stones. Here they are. Number one, God made work good. God made work good. Number two, sin has frustrated your work. And number three, Christ's work is redeeming your work. So work is good, sin is frustrated, but Christ has something to say and his work is actually redeeming your work. So let's unpack those, look at those a little bit uh, and walk through these together. Number one is this idea is so crucial for us that God made work good. So to understand this, we gotta uh, rewind all the way back to Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, God comes up with this idea of vocation. And this idea of work. So let's look at Genesis 1. This is in verse 27. This is what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is what we call the creation mandate. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, maybe a very familiar passage to us. This idea that God created humanity and he created male and female in his very image. And what's the first thing after male and female are created in the image of God that happens? God gives us a job description. He says, you are created in my image. And God said, here's what you are to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the creation. So we have a job description right from the very beginning. If you, could, if you continue on in Genesis chapter two, so Genesis, think of Genesis chapter one as sort of an overview of creation. Genesis chapter two tells the same story, but it's sort of more uh, at a granular level. It's a double click down to see what, uh, what the same story is. But in Genesis chapter two, we see the same thing. Verse five, it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, there was no man to work the ground. And so God then therefore goes and he creates humanity and watch what he does in 2.15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so God takes humanity, why? Because there's no man to work the ground. So he creates humanity, he puts him in Eden. The, the, the word Eden in Hebrew means delight. So he takes humanity, puts them in the garden called delight, why? To work it and to keep it. That was their profession. And we go on just four verses later, watch what God does next, verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so there is this creation order that God is calling us into vocation and it's good. Now I wanna make one simple observation that Genesis one and two come before Genesis three. And you're like, wow, pastor, I'm so glad I came to church this morning for that insight that Genesis 1 and 2 come before Genesis 3. This timeline is incredibly important though. Because if you're reading the story, what happens in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis 3 is what we call the fall of humanity. Remember Adam and Eve, they eat of the forbidden fruit. They do what they ought not do, disobedience. And so death comes, their eyes are opened, the curse falls upon them. That all happens in Genesis 3. But what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God gives humanity a job, a vocation, a job description. And so why that's important is that we have to recognize that work is not a result of the fall. I know it feels that way. Every Monday morning, you're like, I get the curse. Amen to Genesis 3. But Genesis chapter 1 and 2, work is actually considered good. It's a part of what it means to bear the image of God, to be sort of co-laboring with God in this creation order. That God gives us the raw materials of creation and says, create something. Take the chaos of the world and create order. Tame what is wild. So he gives us the raw materials and says, now, now make something beautiful and wonderful and show forth what it looks like to be an image bearer, to rule and to subdue. The word image in Hebrew uh, bears this idea of a statue. And so if you were to think about it, what Moses is doing when he's writing Genesis, he's saying simply that, that God created you and I to sort of be a statue of him. 
You say, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you think about when, when a king would roll into uh, a new place, his, his soldiers would go in and they would take ownership and they would rule that place. One of the things that a king would do first and foremost was in the center of town, that king would establish a statue of himself to say, this is who is in charge and this is what the king is like. The statue would be right in the middle of town. What's happening here is when we're image bearers, we're not statues of stone, but statues of flesh. To be in this city, to be in your neighborhood, to say, this is what the king is like. This is who is in charge. To look at us is to see what God is like, his mercy and his justice and his righteousness. And we're called to bear his image and to work alongside him as we bring about uh, order from the chaos. That there are gardens and cities and laws and songs all helping us understand what God is like. And so he gives us words. He says, you are to rule and have dominion and subdue. This is all kingly language. It's, it's language of kings. That's the responsibility that we have. And so we rule with and under the authority of God. I want you to see this. I don't, did you notice this? That, that one of the things that God does, I, th- I find so fascinating in, in chapter two, verse 19. is Remember that famous passage in chapter two of Genesis? It says, it's not good for man to be alone. And you would think that the very next verse would be so he created a helpmate suitable. But that's not what happens. If you go back and read Genesis two, it's not good for man to be alone. The very next thing that God does is he gives Adam a job. He says, now go do this job. And the job that he gives them is to name the animals. To name means that there is some ownership. To name something that there is intimacy and responsibility. So when you got your puppy or your kitten or your turtle or your gerbil, what was one of the first things you did with your little pet? You gave it a name, right? It's now Rover or Spiky or whatever your little pet's name is, uh, has a name because there is intimacy and responsibility. If you're a mom and a dad in here, I'm gonna venture a guess that your child's names aren't boy one and girl two. Uh, You don't call them by their social security number. You gave them a name and it shows intimacy and responsibility. What did God do with Adam? He said, Adam, you see this creation. I want you to give it a name. I want you to be intimately involved in it and I want you to have responsibility in it to rule and subdue and multiply and bear fruit. So God is inviting Adam into the process of that self-rulership under his kingly authority. And so it starts shifting the way that we see our jobs away from, man, just the eight to five grind to start seeing it as something that God has called good. So that we're staying at home or in the office or retired, whatever it is that we spend our days doing, we are working for, imaging forth who God is to bear fruit and to multiply and to subdue and to create order out of chaos. It's part of what our job looks like. And so we don't just work 50 weeks out of the year in order to just enjoy two weeks of vacation. That's a terrible way to live. If, if we assume that two weeks of vacation will make up for 50 weeks of, or two weeks of vacation will make up for 50 weeks of toil, our math isn't very good. We've misunderstood the point of what it is our job is supposed to be doing. We endure 50 weeks to enjoy two and we wonder why we're frustrated, burnt out. Uh, 50% of us can't wait to change our jobs. 
because we've misunderstood this calling. We've, we've, we've misrepresented work only as a means of compensation and not as a means of contribution. We've only assumed that work is a means by which I do something and I receive compensation rather than saying I have a kingdom uh, contribution to give. That in my work, I'm being a part of the creation mandate to bring about order from chaos. And so God gives us raw materials and he says, create, help people see what I'm like. Help them to see my mercy and my beauty and my creativity and my grace and my kindness. And so God gives the raw materials of a, a palette of paint and humanity is able to take that and create the Sistine Chapel. Right? Humanity is given the raw materials of some cement and some, some steel and we're able to make Pennypacker Bridge. Uh, humanity is given the, the raw materials of flank steak and onions and green peppers and we're able to create the delicacy called fajitas. Uh, <laughs> that's the only amen I'll get this morning. Uh, right? Uh, we're given the raw materials of a guitar and, and lyrics and the greatest album known to man, U2's Joshua Tree, is created. Don't come at me with Thriller or Taylor Swift. You're wrong. It is unequivocally U2's Joshua Tree. What's the point? Is that God gives us lyrics and paint and fields and computer and humanity is able to take those raw materials and create order, show beauty, create meaning and significance through the job that God has given you. But you might be going, yeah, pastor, easy for you to say your job is like Bible stuff. You don't know what I have to go to tomorrow. And you're right, I don't. Recognizing that there's frustration in work, that Sunday feels different than Monday, that, that we've gone sort of crazy in trying to extract profits to the point where we have created terrible realities like slavery or corporate fraud or pornography. These things that have been crushing to us because point two, sin has frustrated the good work that we've been given. Sin frustrates our work and we feel that. Let's read uh, Genesis 2.15 again. Here's what it says. It says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gives them this warning. They disobey that warning. They eat of the fruit. They blame one another. They blame God. They blame Satan. And because of that, there is a curse that comes in Genesis 3, 17. Here's what it says. And he and God said to the man, Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. So because of the fall, work is frustrated and it feels futile. We feel like we're working towards something, but all it's producing is thorns and thistles. We're sweating of the brow to create something, but it's only proving to be uh, not working out. Shannon and I talk about this all the time. We say, why is everything so difficult? Like, why can't it just be easy? 
So I was supposed to get a, a prescription refill this week. Should be simple. You call the number on the bottle, you put in your code, and they say, yes, Mr. Blackwell, we're happy to refill your prescription. However, the computer that I talked to, because you never actually talk to humans, the computer and I had a disagreement. The computer was telling me that the number that I was putting in was wrong, but the computer was wrong. And so frustratingly, I have to wait on hold to talk to a real person. Uh, They say, okay, we can't refill this. You have to have a doctor's appointment for them to say that you can refill it. So I say, okay, hang up, call the doctor's office. I need to get an appointment so that I can get a refill. And they say, great, we'll give you an appointment in four weeks. And I say, in four weeks, I'll already need another prescription refill. Uh, And so they say, let me put you on hold. So an hour and a half later, I'm still waiting for the appointment in four weeks so that I can refill the prescription about me and the computer having disagreements. And I'm like, why can't I just do something that works? It's thorns and it's thistles. Man, we feel that. Why is this so difficult to accomplish something in our work? We work and we work and we work and we we strive only to realize that it's thorns and it's thistles. Verse 17 of chapter three calls it painful labor meaning our work will be frustrated. And so we feel this futility, right? You're a teacher and you are called into this vocation because you care deeply about educating young minds. And so you pour over your lesson plan. You think well about it. You're considering individual students and their particular needs. And you go uh, and you do your best only to get home and realize your inbox is filled with angry emails from moms and dads. Only to realize that the students don't care a lick about what you're trying to teach them. Right? You're a doctor. And you go to medical school and you give years of time and lots of money in order to learn medicine. And you have a patient come to you and you say, this is what is wrong with you. This is the plan. This is the medication needed. You have to wait four weeks, but this will be the medication needed. And your patient looks at you and says, I disagree because I have a thing called WebMD. It's futility. You're a pastor and you write sermons and you pour over the scriptures and you preach week in and week out, hoping that something will happen in your life and in the life of the congregation. But you wonder, Is it doing anything? Is it futility? I read an article this week about a a group. There's two dozen painters that their whole job is to continually paint the Golden Gate Bridge because of the seawater that comes up. uh, It it continually corrodes the, the iconic orange paint. And so there are 24 people that they continually paint. That's their job. And one of the guys has been doing it for 12 years just painting the same thing over and over. It's futility. It's futility. And we wonder, why is it that we get so frustrated with our work? And so what happens when we get in this place, recognizing that sin has frustrated our work, we fall into one of two ditches. We go one or two ways to make mistakes. And those two errors are either we assume that work means nothing, that it's completely meaningless, or that work is everything. That it's the only place to find significance. And so when we think about work as nothing, we think all it is is a paycheck. All I gotta do is just make ends meet. Uh, This this is, uh, it's meaningless, it's endless toil, it's painting the same bridge over and over and over. And if that's you, you would love Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse 20. Listen to this sad man, he says this. So I turned about 
and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Well, it's kind of sad. Uh, Not a verse you're probably gonna get on your mug at home, Uh, but it's this sad verse, but I think we feel this. We feel that work is vexation. And so what we do with it is we sort of begin to give just minimum effort. We sort of lazily or groggily grind through the week just to get home so that we can watch Netflix. We just kind of make it through work because it's so meaningless. But the soul is designed for significance. Work is good, Genesis 1 and 2. You're designed to be an image bearer to show forth who God is. And if you're not doing that in your work, what happens is you do it in another way. You escape to another way, whether drugs or drink or Pinterest or Netflix or YouTube. You're looking for something to say life is meaningful. If we're not doing it, we say, well, work is nothing. But, but the flip side is we say, well, that's not right. So we must have to go to the other ditch. Work is everything. It's the only place to find uh, true value and significance and meaning. Uh, there's an old movie. I know it's always a... It's always a uh, risk quoting a movie that's over 40 years old. But if you haven't seen this movie, I'm, I'm gonna spoil it for you, but it's been out for 40 years. So uh, you've had your chance. It's the movie Rocky. Uh, Rocky is one of the greatest sports movies of all time. It won the best picture in 1976. Uh, there's a scene that is so iconic in the movie Rocky. It's, it's Rocky Balboa, who is a down and out boxer who's just trying to make, uh, make eke out a living. And he has an opportunity to go against the world champ, Apollo Creed. And he's talking to Adrian, his soon-to-be wife. And that's what Rocky says. He says, I was nobody. So all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go the distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Way better if it was in an Italian accent, but I wasn't going to try to make my Rocky accent. For the first time in my life, if I could just go toe to toe, then I'll finally know I'm not a bum from the neighborhood. I'll know that I'm somebody. There's something that we look for in our work to say, I'm finally significant. I've proved to mom, to dad, to my boss, to my spouse, to myself that I matter, that I'm significant. And I've done it because of this job. The problem is, is that we begin to place so much pressure on work to be the source of our significance that it cannot bear the weight of that. You know what that is? It's called idolatry. When we put so much weight on work to say, work, this job is gonna give me significance that only God can give. It's gonna give me meaning and value that only God can give. We make work a surrogate for God and we put work on the idol of worship and become to think of it as the meaning of significance and it cannot bear that weight. So we get overworked, we get frustrated and what do we do? We say it must be the job. It must be the boss's fault. It must be this other person's fault. It's probably the Democrat's fault or the Republican's fault or the Supreme Court's fault or the mandate's fault. It's everybody else's fault. 
And so we just jump ship trying to find another job that will finally answer the call of significance. And the problem is, is that we'll never find significance in idolatry. We'll only find ourselves worshiping a false god. I'm thankful though that the author of Ecclesiastes continues on. He gives us a spark of hope in verse 24. He says, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Right? There's nothing better that you can actually find enjoyment in your job. How does he say that's possible? Well, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? So there is joy in our work. Joy to be had is bearing God's image because work is good, but we frustrated it with all of these expectations. And so while work is good, it isn't God. It's good, but it isn't God. And so instead of looking to work to find significance and meaning, I can bring significance and meaning through the gospel to my work. So now work has meaning. It doesn't necessarily just give meaning. I can give it my all by not expecting it to be my all. And in it, I'm able to honor the Lord. Well, we say, okay, how in the world do we do that? Well, I wanted to point you to Christ. This is our third and last point, is that the work of Jesus is actually redeeming our work. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that is, so we live in a post-Genesis world, right? Post-Genesis three. We live in a world where work is frustrated. Uh, We feel futile in it. But God has come in the form of flesh, took on the form of a human, and he took on a job. You know that Jesus had a job, that he was a carpenter longer than he was a preacher, way longer. So he, in most of his life, fixed tables, made chairs. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what kind of craftsman uh, level of chair that must have been. I would like to sit in a chair that Jesus made. That would be pretty cool uh, to be able to say, now that's a chair. That's a Ron Swanson kind of valuable thing, right? The chair that Jesus made. He spent a lifetime doing that because work is good and it's meaningful. And there's value in a job, uh, even like a carpenter. He came though, not only to make chairs, but to make all things new. He came, uh, the Bible talks about Jesus is coming as the new Adam, the new representative Uh, Romans chapter five, verse 17 says it like this. For if because of one man's trespass, right? That's Adam. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, where, where Adam failed to be an image bearer of God, Christ succeeds. Where Israel continually failed to be the image bearers of God's rule and reign in the world, Christ succeeds. Where you and I continually fail in our work to to show forth and to bear fruit in our work and only complain about it and are frustrated by it, Christ has succeeded. He succeeded in that work. He's redeeming our work. And where death reigned in Adam, life reigns in Christ. The beautiful thing about this is that in Christ, there is a reversal of Genesis 3, a reversing of that curse. If you were walking through that that curse in Genesis 3, you would see shadows of the gospel. Remember back in the curse, uh, we're told that thorns will grow up from the ground. 
Well, those very thorns that grew up from the ground were, were formed into a crown and placed upon the head of Christ. That we're told in the curse that the sweat of the brow would create uh, labor. But in Christ, not only does sweat fall, but blood falls from his brow. We're told in the curse that anything of significance will only come about by painful labor. And at the cross of Christ, the laborious, painful death brings about ultimate fruitfulness. We're told in the curse that we will return to dust, into the ground. And in Christ, we see him return to dust, the king of kings in a grave. But the good news for us is that he doesn't stay in the grave that he returns to newness of life. And in the resurrection, there is a reversal of this curse. There is a newness, there is a a new experience, even of the work that we have. Because Eden, remember Eden means delight. So God is now bringing delight to our work so that we can create with him and delight in him and show forth what he's like in the work that we do on a daily basis. So the question is, well, okay, what happens tomorrow? You're gonna get up, you're gonna take these kids to school, you're gonna clock in, you're gonna log on, you're gonna show up at the office or sit in your home office. How is it that you go about work? Is it seen as futile? Is it your only source of significance? What do we do? Let me give you one verse, Colossians chapter three, verse 23. It says, whatever you do, do it from the heart. As something done for the Lord, not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. So tomorrow, whether you're leading a staff meeting, you're sitting on a Zoom call, you're teaching a classroom of kids, you're sitting in a classroom learning, you're flipping pancakes or burgers, whatever it is that you are doing, there's a way to do that job so that God is honored and glorified and that you receive joy from it. And I recognize this, that every single person in here is like, well, yeah, but you don't understand my unique job. And I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand fully. My hope for you is that this will spur some questions that you begin to answer before the Lord, not answer all the questions that you're asking. Uh, There's lots of questions to be had, too much to unpack here in one sermon, but I do want to invite you. There's There's a group that's gonna be trying to wrestle through this together. And if this is the one thing over the course of this five-week series, you're like, man, I feel like God's calling me to really press in on this idea. Coming up on March 3rd at 6.30 in the evening, they'll be here, what we're calling a redemptive work dinner to just unpack and process what does it look like in my role? What does it look like with my job to be living out the calling that God's placed on me? And, and we'll walk through this little framework. I'll give it to you very briefly. But, but thinking about your work in three sort of categories or th- in three different ways that we see work from three different perspectives. The one is work is exploitative. And this is a bad one. We don't want this. But some of us see work and we use it exploitive, exploitively, meaning we cut corners ethically or relationally. Uh, we squeeze humans uh, and try to get every ounce of profit from them. We don't pay them rightly or if we're an employee, we don't work rightly and, and hard so that uh, we can, and can use the gifts that God's given us. We are exploitative. And, I don't, and hopefully we'll see that, okay, that's not right. 
we, we probably land in the second category mostly, and that's the, the ethical category. I'm on time and I work hard and I'm honest and I do a good job and I see good fruit. And that's good. But I wanna press you even past just being ethical in the office to consider being redemptive. And that's what this dinner is gonna kind of unpack is how do I think through a means by which I can give my life away so that others might grow and see Jesus and grow and understand the gospel and that I might be used and even sacrifice some of my gifts for the good of others and the glory of God. What does it look like to do work in that way? If you're having questions about that, I wanna invite you to join us in one of these, um, these meetings that we'll have. So whether, whatever your job is, wherever you're doing, uh, whether you're working at home or in the office, whether you're making millions or minimum wage, God can use your work for the glory of himself and for your joy. So I encourage you this week to do it well, to do it with thankfulness so that you can, along with the apostle Paul, say, God, whatever I do, I'm gonna do it from the heart. It's something done for you, Lord knowing that you will give us a reward. You're gonna give us an inheritance. Lord, it's you that we are serving. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that you've given us to do. Thank you for the friends who are here today who are wrestling through this, the students, the retiree, the stay-at-home mom or dad, those looking for jobs and wish they could find one, those who have jobs and wish they didn't. And everybody in between, Lord, would you give us insight and wisdom to know how is it that you're calling us to live faithfully to the job that you've given us so that others might see that you're good and you might be honored in it. So give us the ability to do that well. I pray even this week that you give us a thoughtfulness about how we work and serve. Would you keep us from being overwhelmed and frustrated, but allow us to give ourselves give our all, not expecting everything from work, but allow us to give it all, knowing that you've given everything for us so that we might enjoy the fruit of the labor that you've given to us. So now, Lord, we turn our heart's attention to you. Would you continue to receive worship from your people? Would you be honored in our words and in our songs and in our prayers? And we ask for that in Christ's name. Amen.